this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Mark Owen Jones, assistant professor of Middle East Studies and Digital Humanities at Hamad bin Khalifa University in Doha. He's the author of Political Repression in Bahrain, published by Cambridge University Press. His latest book, Disinformation in the Middle East, published by Hearst and OUP, will be available shortly. Our conversation today focuses on the dark arts of digital deception in the MENA region. Mark, uh, thanks very much for joining the Arab Digest podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Social media manipulation. Who are the key MENA players and what are the tactics that they're using? Um, it's, a, it's a big question, but I would say at the moment, the key players are probably the Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and possibly Egypt. At the same time, it's difficult to know for sure. One of the biggest problems we have in the disinformation game is attribution, trying to determine who is behind a particular campaign. By the very nature of these information campaigns, the whole purpose often is to obscure who is behind it. I mean, this goes back to the classic saying, uh, I believe by Goebbels, who said, uh, propaganda ceases to work once people know it's propaganda, right? So the whole point of of propaganda and disinformation is to obscure the origins. At the same time, um, we know from experience and from the rhetoric being used, from the discourses, the arguments being used, that the propaganda and disinformation at the moment tends to reflect the foreign policy of countries like the UAE and Saudi. So we see a lot. um, I mean, I can go into the details about the content later, but I would say they're probably the biggest players. And the tactics they use vary. I mean, it depends what we're talking about. If it's exclusively focusing on disinformation, which is the uh, inserting information that's intended to cause harm to some other party into the information sphere, uh, then then we can talk broadly. There's a few categories, and I focus mostly on social media, so I'll discuss them. Uh, One of the tactics is to feed messages to specific influencers on social media. So that's people who have large followings on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. By doing that, you're inserting a message to people who then are able to distribute that message to a large follower base. And in some ways, this gives the the, the notion that that information is organic because it's coming from real people. Uh, Those influencers then put out the message and then they distribute it. And we know that uh, this exists in a quasi-informal way. So there's a, a Saudi Arabian digital marketing company, for example, called SMAT, S-M-A-A-T. And what we know from their operation, we know, for example, that Twitter suspended about 88,000 of their Twitter accounts at the end of last year, 2019. But we know that part of their operation is that if you approach them with a campaign, and this could be innocuous, it could be, I want to promote this oud perfume or this, uh, you know, this new dairy uh, kind of low-fat yogurt or something. Or it could be something more sinister. But essentially, one of the services they might offer is to is to uh, approach influencers, pay them a fee, and get those influencers to distribute a message to increase the marketing. I mean, this is a common, the use of influencers is common around the world, but I think what's very interesting about the milieu we're seeing in, in the Gulf is the use of influencers to actually promote propaganda messages. And at the same time, it's almost certainly true that the government have more in-house operations that, that seek to promote disinformation. It's just harder to get a, it's harder to get a kind of fix on those. So that's kind of one way of doing it. That the purpose of any of this is not only to insert a message, a specific message into the information sphere, but it's to dominate that information sphere. 
So if you want to, um, for example, promote the message that Turkey, Iran and Qatar together are destabilizing the Middle East, then what you need to do is uh, produce that message consistently and in large volume across the digital ecosystem and across the legacy media. Because in order for it to be effective, you need to saturate the market. At the same time, in order for disinformation to be effective, you have to minimize the amount of information that contradicts your message. Now, there's different ways of doing that. One is to increase the salience of your own information. The other is to prevent people who might contradict you. Obviously, domestically, that's easy. You can, you can see what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. He was killed largely because he was contradicting what Mohammed bin Salman wanted to be known about Saudi Arabia at the time. Um, so I think what's interesting is easy uh, and I think incorrect to try and pass off information or as this separate thing from the physical realm of violence and state repression. At the very, at the very, the most sinister aspect of this is to create a repressive environment of censorship uh, amongst your domestic audience that prevents anyone contradicting your message. That's fundamental to all of this. You by doing that, and this is the overarching system, you create a co-opted information space, a space in which you are able to dominate the message through a lack of contradiction and through the ability to pump out certain information at high volume. Let me ask then about the impact, how significant it is, how seriously should we take it? I mean, what, what sort of impact is it having? I think it's, it's significant. There's, there's different ways of addressing this question. One of the questions about impact, which is important, is, is information, is incorrect information or disinformation changing people's perception of reality? Um, we haven't really done many case studies of this, but at the same time, this is a well-trodden path in the realm of media studies and communication. Um, what we do know is that people are more likely to um, reflect the ideas that they are exposed to. And if you can control these flow of ideas, then you can pretty much assume that there is this, uh, uh, that the people will be absorbing and reproducing those ideas. At the same time, we have to see what is the purpose of these disinformation campaigns. There's a difference between saying we want to uh, change people's perceptions of an argument to uh, we want to remind people what the acceptable line is that they then will produce, right? So if you live in an authoritarian straight state and you are exposed to the message that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood are bad, for example, you know that that's what you're expected to say. So whether or not you believe it is in some ways irrelevant because that is the line you are fed. That is the party line. That is the state line. So that's one aspect of it. At the same time, you need to. We can we can find examples where the purpose of a propaganda operation has probably been successful. If we look recently uh, at the disinformation campaign that began at the beginning of May 2020, in which uh, thousands of Twitter accounts claimed that there had been a coup d'état in Qatar. We know that the purpose of this campaign was not to convince people that there had been a coup in Qatar. I mean, that would be a bonus. The purpose of this campaign was to get people to believe that Qatar was maybe experiencing some instability. And to do that, all you need to do is sow doubt and perhaps create the illusion that there had been rumours of a coup. And what we then saw is legacy media like the Independent Arabia, Russia Today, Sky News Arabia reporting on this event as rumours of a coup. Now, simply by reporting that there'd been rumours of a coup, those news organisations were then essentially uh, fulfilling the goals of the propagandists, which is to create an illusion of instability and uh, discord within the Gulf. So 
what we can say, there can be stages of this. You create rumors online, these get filtered into the legacy media. You could argue that legacy media have perhaps more credibility in some parts of the world anyway. And that by, by those media outlets reproducing this knowledge, you're increasing the likelihood of people believing it and the credibility of that information. These are all chains of kind of influence. Whether the average Joe on the street believes this, is, it very much depends on certain things such as the educational level, you know, their general outlook. I, for one, know that during the coup rumor, I had colleagues who weren't in the country contacting me saying, oh, has there been a coup? So at least for a very uh, a transient moment, a short moment in time, that made them fearful of the situation in Qatar. Obviously, I rectified that. So talking about cause and effect is very hard. But I think if we were to look at this in its grand scale, from social media disinformation to the lobbying conducted by PR companies who work on behalf of these governments to legacy media influence, I think it would be impossible to deny that there isn't a negative effect that this has. And, and, and a significantly negative effect, you would argue. Ah, absolutely. It's, it's hugely negative. I mean, we, I, I think as much as anything, this prevents, the volume of this information prevents people from getting access to high quality information. Also, one of the biggest problems of this deluge of information, it makes it hard for people to know who to trust or what information to trust. So actually what happens is there becomes a crisis of trust in, in, in the news media, which as, as we've seen, especially in the past five or six years, this kind of, it, it contributes to this notion of the post-truth world. Um, who do we trust? What information sources do we trust? Not only are politicians discrediting media outlets, but the sheer amount of disinformation we are exposed to, and once we know that it's disinformation, makes us then uh, question the credibility of those news sources. And when we don't trust that, we don't know necessarily who to trust. And, and that really can lead to kind of an existential crisis of, I'm being lied to. Um, so I think in any society, demo democratic or otherwise, you need a healthy information sphere where people believe that they're getting trustworthy information. And I would say largely people do know that they're not. And those that don't know are, are being introduced to a version of reality that does not bear any relation to the facts. And the type of disinformation that we're seeing in the Middle East is very much the type that is intended to demonize specific actors, most notably Iran, the Houthis, Turkey, Qatar, but also other organizations like the Muslim Brotherhood on more parochial levels, protesters in you know, Iraq or Lebanon are being demonized by all of this. So much of this propaganda attempts to turn people against another group of people, which by its very nature can increase the likelihood of conflict. So yes, I would say it's incredibly detrimental and destabilizing. Now, you spoke about the, the so-called Qatar coup. When this first broke, did you say, aha, uh, I've been here before? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I woke up, I think, uh, um, I woke up quite early at five in the morning, and I had a message from a colleague who works on Libya. And she was like, Mark, have you seen this? I was like, oh. And the, it was Inqalab fi Qatar, so coup in Qatar. And my first instinct was like, oh, here we go again. This is just more nonsense. Because I've been looking at this for years, you know, maybe... Two, three years ago, I thought, oh my gosh, maybe there's been a coup in Qatar. But my first instinct was absolutely, this is nonsense. So I just went downstairs as I normally do, switched on my computer, started downloading the tweets, started looking at the patterns, started looking at some of the things being tweeted, which included lots of videos. Um, and because my mindset was very much one of, this is here to be debunked, my, my first goal was, not, was just simply to check, okay, here's a video of an alleged shooting, sounding of gunfire. Let me go and see if this is real. And almost within a couple of hours, myself and one or two other people had identified that a lot of the information being circulated was fabricated and concocted. 
by an analyzing the Twitter networks, I could see that Sock Puppet accounts had been, um, uh, yes, so, so Sock Puppet accounts would be, uh, usually what they are is that someone somewhere has opened a Twitter account, forgotten about it, and it's been either hacked uh, and then purchased by some other entity to be used as an account um, to promote a specific message. So for example, in the case of the coup, I found a network of accounts that looked like Europeans who had never ordinarily ever tweeted in Arabic, let alone about politics, just, you know, smiley looking people by the beach. So, uh, you know, and acting in a coordinated way that would suggest that they certainly weren't who they claimed to be. These were active on the hashtag, which again suggests that someone had uh, used, either paid for some service to promote this message, which again is indication of a influence campaign. So there was that, there was the fake tweets, there was the fact that um, there was a set group of influencers on it, none of whom were specifically journalists who were in Qatar or connected to Qatar, um, and one of whom is Mondar72, he's prolific in, in, in spreading these kind of disinformation stories. So it had all the hallmarks of a disinformation campaign. Um, and so within a few hours it was very clear that this was fake. I mean, that didn't stop the gravity of the situation. Uh, you know, by that evening, even though the videos had been debunked, Al Arabiya, uh, again the editor of the uh, the Independent Arabia, had all reproduced and reposted the fake content without qualifying or later uh, correcting that posts, uh, which not just not only suggests this was a disinformation campaign, but it was a disinformation campaign that had been coordinated at a relatively high level. Because any journalist, I think, with integrity who had, who had posted something that was known to be false would qualify that, or at least they ought to. How did you know that the video was fake? Okay, so in, in one of the cases, one of the videos that was posted, one of the first ones, and it was shared by a number of influencers, it showed a, a nighttime scene um, with uh, the sound of gunshots. There was, a brief, uh, there was a brief clip and frame in the video where you could see the edge of a house. And then if you listen to the audio, in addition to the gunfire, you could hear someone shouting uh, Rasas Rasas. Uh, essentially it meant bullets. Someone was shouting bullets, is that gunfire? Um, I, uh, with that video, I believe I typed in the text that I heard in Arabic and then video. And I scrolled through several videos, quite a lot actually, until I found one that um, when I played uh, was identical to that. And the last, the last eight seconds of the video that I found was exactly the same video that had been posted. However, this video that I found had been posted on Al Jazeera website, I think back in 2018. So what we could see is that that video was clearly the same video had been posted in 2018. And a number of other videos, uh, you know, they did similar things. Uh, one was a, a picture of smoke uh, coming from, um, a, you know, it was shot, it was obviously Qatar, uh, and the video that was posted was like, oh look, there's been a, uh, an altercation between Turkish troops, loyal to Tamim and Hamid bin Jassim. Uh, but then, you know, I, 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 was, I, was, I knew it was Qatar, so I searched, I think, um, Qatar fire, and I scrolled again through videos until I found an identical video that, again, was from two years previously. Others were things like, look, Turkish troops are in Qatar now, because with the argument that was being presented in this whole coup debate was that Turkish troops loyal to Tamim were resisting a, a coup attempt by Hamid bin Jassim. And actually, if you looked at a lot of these, you could just search for, I don't know, um, troop movements or troop drills in Qatar and sift through a lot of videos and then find actually that these had just been taken from a couple of years ago and then added 
this tweet without any context. And obviously this kind of disinformation campaign relies on uh, people either not checking this information, or even if they do, it seems to be irrelevant. Like I said, um, the we debunked these videos, but none of the journalists who, who took it as read ever said, oh, these are fake now, we're not going to post them, or we're, we're going to post an apology. As you say, uh, creating the illusion is, is, is important. Of course, Tamim being the Sheikh and Hamad bin Jassim, the former prime minister now resident in London, presented as the as the coup leader. Uh, let me ask you about uh, nationalism, what some people are calling hyper-nationalism, and how the regimes are using social media to, to ramp up and to weaponize this nationalist sentiment. Mm. I mean, I think there's a lot of things going on in the Gulf. Uh, I think Abdul Khalik Abdullah called it the Gulf moments uh, several years ago. Madawi Rashid talks about hyper-nationalism. Um, and I think there's a, th- a number of things that are going on that are, are contributing to this. Whenever you have war, as you have now between Saudi, UAE, a few of the coalition states in Yemen, this tends to result in the promotion of nationalism. Right? So that's one thing. The Qatar crisis is another thing. But much of this is top-down. Um, since the rise of Mohammed bin Salman in particular in Saudi Arabia, his cult of personality and his need or his perceived need to fight against this old guard is very much creating a situation where they... He feels that he needs to place the emphasis on him and himself. So much of the nationalism that I see certainly coming out of Saudi Arabia and online revolves using him in the iconography, pictures of MBS or indeed the king, pictures of Saudi flags. Um, the problem is, if, if you look on any sort of social media storm about in the Arabic language, you'll see a sea of Saudi flags, a sea of pictures of MBS. And I would certainly say that some of this nationalism is, is genuine. Uh, but at the same time, it's hard to know when it is and when it isn't. The dangers of genuine nationalism in terms of disinformation are, 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 are I would say, fairly obvious. Because what you can do, for example, when I mentioned disinformation, if, if you sort of say, right, let's spread this message to influencers, a few nationalistic co-opted influencers, then, uh, for example, and this message is about demonizing Turkish foreign policy, if you are very nationalistic mindedly, you will re- nationalistically minded. You will reproduce this message without much criticism because this goes along with what the state line is. So, by co-opting nationalism, by having this nationalism, you are fueling disinformation by having a willing, uh, I suppose, army of people on online to promote this specific message. And from what I see, it is it's pretty, it's becoming very toxic. Certainly from the Saudi Twitter, from the Emirati one, and it exists in Qatar too. But I, I think. At, the Qatari nationalism that seems organic, sort of bottom-up as opposed to top-down, which it usually is in the Gulf, has generally been a response to the 2017 crisis. So there's been a tendency to rally around Tamim, whereas I think what we see in, in Saudi and the UAE, which is reflected in the foreign policy, is a, is, is a sort of more aggressive expansion of, um, I suppose, their the roles in the region. I mean, George Orwell always made a distinction between patriotism and nationalism. Nationalism was a, a patriotism rather was the desire to celebrate one's own culture, whereas nationalism was the desire to spread one's own cultural values. And and fed, as you say, by by social media manipulation. You mentioned Qatar uh, in their feud. This goes back to 2017 and the blockade inflicted yep. upon Qatar by the Saudis, the Emiratis, Bahrain, and Egypt. Um, how involved are the Qataris in the sort of practices you've been describing? Yeah, I mean, there is, to an extent, it's 
it's um, there's this problem here with equivalence. I mean, Qatar have a different, I think, approach to soft power. They've invested far more in, I would say, legacy media to project uh, their message. But at the same time, it's always it's always a dangerous ground to suggest because one side does one thing, the other side must do it too. I mean, Qatar does do it. There was a report, I think, in a Graphica released a report that related to uh, some entity in Qatar procuring the services of an Indian company to promote uh, PR and propaganda about the World Cup, uh, in which uh, fake accounts were basically sort of promoting the message of uh, you know Qatar holding the World Cup, and I think they were also criticising some of the blockading states. That's the only real obvious example we have of social media manipulation from the Qatarian. Um, I should add that even, well, certainly on Twitter, I should add that also Twitter have removed thousands of accounts that they suspect of being state-backed and engaging in state-backed propaganda. But all of those accounts so far relate to Egypt, Saudi and the Emirates in the, in the Middle Eastern context, attacking Iran, Turkey and Qatar. So on an official level from Twitter, we haven't seen them remove accounts linked with Qatar engaging the same level of disinformation and propaganda. I think we've, and in Facebook as well, I think the amount of pro-MBS uh, accounts and pages have also tended to, to reflect the, the, the demands of the blockading countries. We know that Linton Crosby, a, a British or Australian PR firm that helped the Tories get to power in the UK, were actually found to be responsible for operating a number of Facebook pages that uh, burnished the reputation of Mohammed bin Salman. So there's certainly more evidence that the blockading countries are engaging this. I read Christian Ulrichsen's recent book on the Qatar crisis. I mean, one of the arguments there is that in order to weather this crisis better, Qatar have had to try and portray themselves as the more uh, reasonable interlocutor in all of this. And that involves conforming to rule of law standards, adhering to international norms of behavior that give it some sort of moral high ground. I don't know how, to what extent we can say that always true, but in the information space, I think largely uh, the uh, Qatar, Qatar seems to have deported itself, certainly uh, in a less overtly propagandist kind of approach. Having said that, I could be wrong, you know, maybe they're just better at it. <laughs> Let me ask you then about Israel. There is this emerging detente, as, as you know, between the Gulf states, uh, most particularly the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Israelis. Does Israel have a hand in this game? Uh, Israel almost certainly has a hand in the game. Strange things are happening. We know certainly from an information control perspective, surveillance uh, technology perspective, that Israel and the Gulf, particularly the Emirates, are cooperating far more closely in terms of technology and spyware. Okay. Um, we also know that there's an increasing normalization or a desire for normalization, particularly under Mohammed bin Salman and probably Mohammed bin Zayed as well. Um, politically, it makes sense. What we're seeing online also would reflect that. Um, for example, recently there's been this uh, trend of uh, Palestine, which is, you know, Palestine isn't our cause, which is a very unusual thing to see trending in Arabic. And a lot of the accounts that are propagating this message appear to be coming from Saudi and the Emirates. Uh, and they are spreading the discourse that um, essentially, why is Palestine our problem? Which to me, all that is doing is an attempt to nudge people via the use of influences into this notion that Palestine shouldn't be our problem, therefore setting the way for normalization with Israel. So there's this overlap, I think, between a lot of the messaging I'm seeing that seems to be pro-Saudi with a pro-Israeli uh, pro kind of perspective. 
So it certainly would make sense to me that uh, the Saudis are trying to normalize um, using social media uh, an impending thawing of relationship with Israel. So we're seeing this kind of nudge effect on social media um, and it's, it's, it's definitely becoming more salient or has become more salient, I would say, in the past year than the past few months. Deceptions, lies, illusions, fake accounts, co-opted accounts, personal threats and smears. It's a dark world, Mark. Ah, it's a very dark world indeed. Um, certainly one of the issues that we have is that most of these platforms, especially Twitter, are very open to manipulation. Anyone can set up an account. I could sit here and set up goodness knows how many accounts. If I have the resources that a state would, I could do that very easily because I could have access to SIM cards and phone numbers. And simply by doing that, I could create an army of people who could harass people online or spread propaganda very easily. There's no real sound mechanism to prevent that from happening. Uh, I think certainly what we're seeing in, in the region, we have this kind of paradox of a situation where we have very, very uh, restrictive censorship laws over the media, but actually a very permissive use of these technologies that allow them to be abused. I think also, I think governments where these companies operate, which mostly in this case is the US government, need to actually treat media platforms as uh, tools that can be weaponized. Let's not forget, for example, in the, uh, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, propaganda for war and hatred is actually illegal. So in theory, it's illegal in international law. But at the same time, there's very little due diligence that has to be undertaken by any of these companies to uh, allow their platforms to operate in places that have poor human rights records. So I'm not saying this would stop the problem, but as far as I know, there's no, com there's no compulsion for any of these companies to say, should we be operating in somewhere like Saudi or the Gulf, where they have a really bad press freedom record, really bad human rights record, right? So there's very little in the way of regulation, even soft touch regulation about these companies. Um, so I think there's a lot that can be done. But uh, it's, it, it really involves changing the system. You know, uh, Twitter have a monopoly, Facebook have a monopoly. They're integrated now into the news ecosystem. You know, you see every news website has a share button that goes in Twitter. People have already established themselves on Twitter. So it has this kind of power, this hegemony that's hard to shake. And at the moment, um, I don't see that necessarily changing. Unless Trump gets so annoyed that they're censoring him that he decides to try and burn the whole thing down, I'm which is also possible. There's another irony right there. Mark, <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Bill. It was a pleasure talking. Sorry, I think Alexa just interrupted there. <laughs> How fitting, you know. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Mark Owen Jones, Assistant Professor of Middle East Studies and Digital Humanities at Hamad bin Halifa University in Doha. He's the author of Political Repression in Bahrain, published by Cambridge University Press. His latest book, Disinformation in the Middle East, published by Hearst and OUP, will be available shortly. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest. Essential reading from independent sources.